Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Sarah Seidner, the one and only, is here. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, August 28th. This morning, a high-stakes hearing in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is set to lay out details of her case against former President Donald Trump. It's part of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, bid to get his own case moved to federal court. At the same time, Trump's legal team will appear in court in Washington, D.C. as part of his other federal election interference case. We're watching to see if the judge sets a trial date for that case, which could happen as early as today. And in Florida, the Justice Department is now investigating whether the deadly shooting in Jacksonville was indeed a hate crime. The twisted writings of the suspect make clear he did hate black people. And when he opened fire at a Dollar General, that is exactly who he targeted and killed. And people in Florida's Gulf Coast are bracing for a possible hurricane. Forecasters are warning tropical storm Idalia is picking up strength and could start hitting the panhandle as soon as tomorrow. And she's back. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles breaking yet another record last night. Biles won her eighth national all-round title at the U.S. Gymnastics Nationals. In her second elite meet since returning to the sport after a two-year hiatus, CNN This Morning starts right now. I was interested how you're going to do the back. It was good. The intonation. It was Just really it was well, it, well, well done, well written, well scripted, well performed. Sir Seidner, welcome. We are bracing this morning for very big developments in both election subversion cases against former President Donald Trump. At 10 a.m. Eastern, just four hours from now, judges in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. will be holding simultaneous hearings and may give us new details about the timing and the substance in the cases about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will be the first prosecutor to sketch out parts of her evidence and arguments in the anti-racketeering case against the former president and his alleged co-conspirators. This could be a kind of mini trial that plays out as ex-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows tries to get his state case moved to federal court. And at the same time in D.C., a judge will weigh arguments from the special prosecutor and Trump's defense team over the timing of the federal version of this trial. Jack Smith's office wants to start right after the new year, while the ex-president is pushing for way after the election. He wants an April 2026 date. We're covering developments in both cases this morning. We begin with CNN's senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, who is outside the federal courthouse in Atlanta. Can you walk us through a bit the, the arguments that Meadow is going to make in front of a judge today? Of course, Sarah. So this morning, we are going to be seeing this hearing convene. It could take quite a bit of time because there will be witnesses, there will be legal arguments. And the question at play here today is, was Mark Meadows at White House, as White House chief of staff whenever he was facilitating calls from Donald Trump, outreach to state legislatures in different battleground states, and also that call to Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia? Was he doing that as a federal official that was part of his job? He can he show that to a federal judge to make the case that this case should have some additional protection for him, moving it from the state court where it's charged by the DA Fonnie Willis to the federal court? 
Or was this something that was more political? So what's happening today is there is, there is going to be evidence presented here. Some of that will be witness testimony. That will include the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, we believe. There are three other people who have also been subpoenaed, one who received an additional call from Trump that was a Georgia investigator, two others who were on that Raffensperger call. And then here's just a glimpse of one of the things we're likely to hear in court today. There is a, some sound from that audio call that Trump made to Brad Raffensperger. Let's take a listen to it for a second. It starts with a lawyer from the state of Georgia speaking and then Meadows response. I'm happy to you know, sit down with or have our lawyers sit down with Curtin and, and, and the lawyers on, on that side and explain to him, hey, here's based on what we've looked at so far. Here's how we know this is wrong. 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 So what you're out. what you're saying, Ryan? Hold on, let me let me make sure. So what you're saying is you is you really don't want to give access to the data. You just want to make another case on why the lawsuit is wrong. I don't think we I don't think we can give access to to, to data that's protected by law. Um, but we can sit down with them and say. But hey, you're allowed to have a phony election. Way. You're allowed to have a phony election, right? No, sir. So that's the sort of conversation from that call that the judge is very likely going to be looking at and weighing today. Was that something that Mark Meadows was doing as White House chief of staff or was he helping Trump politically separately? Does this case move? And it's going to be quite a litmus test for not just Mark Meadows, for other defendants in this case, potentially even Donald Trump included. Hey, Caitlin, real quick. Are we going to be able to see all this play out? There's been a lot of talk about what a state court, what Georgia doing this will mean for what people can actually see. Is that going to be the case today? Unfortunately, Phil, we will not see inside the federal courthouse. There are no cameras in court. What we will be able to see are sketches from courtroom sketch artists. That is one big difference between having these proceedings in federal court if they are moved there versus state court. State court, we get the cameras. You get to see a lot. You get to see judges. You get to see witnesses. But instead today, we're just going to be sitting inside the court watching paper and pens, courtroom sketch artists, and then delivering the information to you when we can. Busy day, as always. Kaylin Polance, thanks so much. All right, now to Washington, D.C., where in just a few hours, the judge and the federal investigation into Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the election will hold a hearing in that case. Judge Tanya Chuktan will consider dueling arguments by special counsel Jack Smith and Trump's defense team over the date for a trial. Let's go now to CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez, who is in Washington for us. Evan, uh, what does Team Trump want to do and what are we expecting the special counsel to ask for? Well, good morning, Sarah. Well, we know that the, the former president doesn't want this trial to happen anytime soon. His, uh, his lawyers have, have, have uh, suggested a trial date of April 2026. Uh, the special counsel, Jack Smith, his uh, team has asked for uh, a trial as soon as January. That's in a f- just a few more, a few months from now. Uh, we expect that Judge Tanya Chutkin, who has already signaled that she wants to set a trial date, and she wants to, she believes that this trial should go on very, very soon. We expect that she's going to f- probably set something for uh, next year before the elections. That's certainly all of the signals we've gotten from from her. Of course, the the former president's legal team has pointed out that 
he needs time to get ready for for such a trial, in part because uh, there he's facing three uh, other indictments, including another one from Jack Smith down in South Florida, where he's facing uh, charges related to the classified documents uh, retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the former president is facing four counts in this case. This is a very narrow case, unlike the one that, that Caitlin is, is covering down in Georgia. This case has to do with four counts, conspiracy to defraud the United States, uh, obstructing uh, the uh, proceedings of Congress, and of course, uh, conspiracy to, to deny the voting rights of Americans, particularly uh, the Americans in those, uh, in those states, in, the, in those uh, uh, states where the former president was trying to overturn the election result. We expect, again, that we might hear a trial date as soon as today from Judge Chutkin. Guys? All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. We will be watching to see what happens in that case. Over to you, Phil. This is one of the two weapons that was in possession of the white gunman in Jacksonville, Florida, on Saturday when he shot and killed three black people at a Dollar General store. You see, if you look the top right and the bottom right, two swastikas drawn into the AR-style rifle that was used. Vice President Kamala Harris says the deadly shooting is being investigated as a possible hate crime and an act of domestic violent extremism. CNN's Isabel Rosales is live in Jacksonville. Isabel, the, the sheriff is saying the two firearms used by the shooter, they were legally purchased here. What more do we know about what precipitated this rampage and what's happening in the aftermath? Right. They were both legally purchased from a private, uh, from two gun dealers, and there was no criminal history here with this shooter. But Phil, there is outbreak and uh, uh, outrage and heartbreak with this community as the shooter and outsider traveled to this predominantly black community. The first place he ended up wasn't this Dollar General, but instead a historically black school. I thought racism was behind us, but evidently it's not. You was a coward. You went in there and shot these innocent people for nothing that you didn't even know. Family members of victims reacting to the racially motivated mass shooting in Jacksonville Saturday that took the lives of three black people. Angela Michelle Carr, 52 years old. Anolt Joseph, or AJ uh, Laguerre Jr., 19 years old. And Gerald Deshaun Gallion, 29 years old. Sunday, authorities revealed new details about the events leading up to the shooting. Investigators say before the gunman opened fire at a Dollar General store, he showed up in the parking lot of a historically black university nearby and was turned away by security for refusing to identify himself. So our campus security uh, officer uh, did confront the, the, the perpetrator um, and the perpetrator immediately got in his vehicle and started to, to drive away. Minutes later, the gunman arrived at the Dollar General. Deputies released this edited surveillance video showing the shooter opening fire on the first victim in her car in the parking lot. The edited clip then shows the gunman entering the store where he shot the second and third victims. Shortly after, investigators say the gunman texted his dad. The suspect texts his father and says, use a screwdriver to get into my room. The father enters the room and finds a last will and testament of the suspect along with a suicide note on his laptop. 11 minutes after the shooting started, officers entered the store and heard a gunshot, presumably when the gunman shot and killed himself, according to deputies. Investigators are now combing through his writings. The manifesto is, is, a, is quite frankly, uh, the diary of a madman. He was just completely irrational. 
Um, but what is, irrational, what is irrational thoughts? He knew what he was doing. Authorities say the shooter, who lived with his parents in Orange Park, had no criminal arrest history. He legally purchased and owned the two guns used in the mass shooting. The Justice Department is now taking part in the investigation, calling it a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Father, today we pray for healing, healing for the families, healing for generational curses. Sunday, friends, family, and community members gathered at a vigil for the victims. We just thought it'd be appropriate to bring AJ a little, little something. Gerald was a fun, loving young man. He was very active in my granddaughter's life. She loved her daddy, and her daddy loved her. He didn't miss a beat in her life. One state lawmaker says she's having a hard time processing the senselessness of it. That was someone planning and executed three people. So from years ago to listening to people say, you know, as a black people, we've come a long way. After what happened yesterday, I questioned that and say, have we really? And city leaders are working to raise money to help out the victims' families, pay for those funerals, and also to help pay for their needs. And meanwhile, while we learn from Sheriff T.K. Waters, a black man, that, that the shooter had no criminal history, we also learn that in 2016 there was a domestic call with no arrest, and that in 2017 this shooter was Baker acted, meaning that he was involuntarily detained for 72 hours during a mental health crisis. Phil. All right, Isabel Rosales Forrest down in Jacksonville. Thank you. All right, much the state of Florida, by the way, including the city of Jacksonville, bracing for tropical storm Idalia, which is rapidly gaining strength. Our weather team is tracking this system's movements at this hour. And just how much money is Donald Trump raising off his arrest in Georgia and from that very mugshot? It's in the millions. We're going to tell you more when we get back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. He's going to spend a lot of time in a courtroom and not on a campaign trail. And my concern is we cannot have Kamala Harris as president. We can't chance this. Well, it's Joe Biden that's running, but that was Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley talking about Trump's legal and political calendar colliding. Today, a judge in Atlanta and another judge in Washington, D.C. will hold hearings in two of the cases involving the former president. He is not expected to attend either. In the Atlanta case, we are expecting Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to preview for the very first time in court the details of her sprawling racketeering case against Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants. It will be Willis's first chance to enter some specifics about the prosecution's case into the public record. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst. He is rearing to go, by the way, John Avalon, former assistant U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York, Sarah Krisoff, and Mara Gillespie. She was the deputy chief of staff for former Congressman Adam Kinzinger and the founder and principal of Blue Stack Strategies. Good morning to you all. I'm going to start with the easy question this morning because it is 6.18 a.m. and that's what I can do at 6.18 a.m. What should we expect to happen at today's hearings? Should I start with you, John? Sure. Why not? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Look, this is going to be the first sort of preview of the case that Fonnie Willis is going to bring. 
Um, and that's interesting because we haven't heard sort of a, you know, in-court presentation by the principal making the case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. And that's what we can expect today, in addition to, you know, some further further uh, discussion around Mark Meadows' uh, attempt to uh, move uh, his, you say he should be tried under federal statute. But that's the preview. That's where the attention should be. That's that's the headline. Okay. Sir, to that point, you know, I think the there's been an assumption that Mark Meadows was, may have been the first, but isn't going to be the only one who's trying to move the case from state to federal. But in, in talking to lawyers about this, there's not a ton of case law here. There's not a lot of precedent. What should people be thinking about the actual likelihood that Meadows and then perhaps Trump later on could succeed here? Yeah, this is really an unprecedented area of the law. There's a lot of case law and removal per se, but it's usually in the civil context, not the criminal context. So we're really in, in uncharted territory here, frankly, and the judge has an opportunity to make some new law. So first the question is, you know, should Mark Meadows' case be removed to federal court and be tried in federal court with the federal procedures applying? Um, and if that is the case, if the judge decides that the case, that's the case, should all of the defendants be then tried in federal court or will the case be sort of divided up with some tried in state court and one or more tried in federal court? Sarah, can I ask you just a quick question about why moving to federal court is so important to to Meadows? I mean, if it's in Atlanta, if the you know there's a federal court there, wouldn't it be the same jury jury pool? What is what is he looking to do, and what are others looking to do? So I think there's a sort of a a belief that the federal court is a little bit more apolitical. You have well the well the judge here that's presiding over this removal process was appointed by Obama. There is sort of a apolitical nature to the court. Um, the federal procedures would apply. So I think that is a particular appeal to Meadows and, and perhaps Trump if he makes this move as well to seek removal, which I, I expect he'll do, uh, depending on the outcome of today's procedure. And I, I think there is also, you know, uh, probably a, an appeal to sort of taking Fannie Willis out of her sort of comfort zone out of her home territory, so to speak, and putting her in a courtroom where she's probably not as comfortable. More on the political side of things, uh, the, the Trump team is very happy to announce how much money they've raised uh, in the days after uh, the president, former president showing up uh, for his arraignment. Uh, I think $4 million plus on Friday in total, more than $7 million. You know, Clearly, this is playing well with the base. It has every single time this has happened <laughs> up to this point. There have been four of these. Uh, but I guess the question is, when you look at the calendar, when you look at the convergence of the legal with the political, how much money this is going to cost as well, is this in, does this end up actually being a net benefit on the money side? He's already eating through so much of his campaign money uh, for, to cover his legal bills. And again, it, it's really hard to watch as this self-proclaimed millionaire, billionaire who arrived in Fulton County on his jet that says Trump, his huge plane. And yet he's asking his donors, his supporters, his loyal fan base to pay for his legal bills. I, just the juxtaposition of watching him fly in on his, his big plane and then also be begging them for $5 donations, it really does, it, it makes me sad for his supporters who are blindly, you know, giving to him uh, and they will continue to have to because they're mounting up this year. I believe in the first six months of the year, he's already spent well over $20 million on his legal fees and is eating into his campaign funds and is continually, as we've seen, fundraising off of this.
And it's also interesting, he keeps changing lawyers as well. It's kind of an interesting uh, trail uh, of lawyers that have been left behind. Um, I do want to talk about what some of the uh, presidential candidates, GOP presidential candidates have said. Chris Christie uh, waited no time and minced no words. Here's what he said about the Trump announcement, uh, the campaign announcement of, of raising all this money off that mugshot. There's almost nothing anymore that he could do that would surprise me in terms of the ongoing grift. Um, you know, Donald Trump promised the country when he ran in 2016 that he would um, drain the swamp. Really, all he did was rearrange the swamp. Okay, so that has been something that a lot of people have talked about, the, the swamp and trying to, you know, rid the D.C. of the swamp. But to Chris Christie's point, he's been one of the only ones who have been really strong coming up against Donald Trump. Will other Republicans follow? You're starting to see, beginning in that debate, some Republicans move towards the Christie position. Christie, typical, you know, using big, tough words like grift. Yeah. Right, really. And by the way, later in that interview, you got into really specifics about family members and money coming from foreign entities, right? But the basic point is, like, he is fleecing his supporters Mm. to pay for his legal bills, which is a fact. What's interesting, to your point, is that Nikki Haley started to make similar uh, n- noises, really saying that, look, this is a distraction. He's the least popular politician in the country, and he's fleecing his supporters. So this, this is the issue. This is a president. This is a legal defense fund masquerading as a presidential campaign. Mm. This is it. But it's a serious, serious thing that's happening to the country, to the Republican Party. And, and, and his donors are paying for it willingly. Legal. Say that again. That was <laughs> it, really is a, it is a legal defense fund masquerading as a presidential campaign. But to John's credit, this is not just another great Avalon line, which he like comes at six in the morning, like remarkably prepared for them, and it drives me insane. Uh, but also, it's a, it's factual, right? When you yeah. actually look at the FEC filings, when the tens of millions of dollars that they spent on legal funds, which were uh, not only just wrecking the super PAC money that they had that they were mm-hmm. trying to ask for it back, but right. also the campaign money. And if you're a Republican looking towards a general election where you know the Democrats are going to raise a billion plus dollars, right. two billion is the target for the Biden campaign, mm-hmm. and you're watching this money just go out the door, Avalon actually has a point here. <laughs> Shockingly. I mean, actually, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Give the men a medal, John Avalon. Thank Thanks, you guys. so much. Thank you, Mara. Appreciate you guys. Well, next, we're going to take you live to Russia, where investigators just confirmed that Putin's ally turned foe, Yevgeny Prigozhin, did in fact die in a plane crash. Stay with us. That's the front cover of the Tampa Bay Times this morning. Preparations are underway as Tropical Storm Idalia rapidly gains strength. Hurricane and storm surge watches are in effect along the state's west coast, including Tampa Bay. Now, Idalia is threatening to hit state as a major hurricane. We want to get right to CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam. And Derek, as you're looking at this develop, how destructive could this storm be? Yeah, Phil, you know, when the National Hurricane Center uses the explicit language rapid intensification over the eastern Gulf of Mexico, uh, we all know the potential there. We have all seen this play out before. This is what you need to know at home. A major hurricane is expected along the Florida Gulf Coast upon its arrival. And this is your last full day to prepare for the storm, especially into the southern Florida Peninsula. And by the way, this is not just a Florida storm. We have to keep an eye on this in Georgia and into the Carolinas for Wednesday and Thursday. 
Here's the latest, 65 mile per hour winds. It's still a tropical storm. It will bring hurricane conditions to western Cuba today. This is important. It started to move in a northerly direction. That is completely different than what it did over the past 36 hours. Now this storm is going to run basically parallel with the Florida Gulf Coast. And this is important because any deviation to the left or any deviation to the right can have major implications on places like Clearwater, St. Petersburg, Cedar Key, Tampa Bay as well. And it is not lost on me. The putting a category three major hurricane upon arrival and what that means for the Florida coastline here. So we remember what happened with Ian. Look at this, seven to 11 feet, right along that big bend there. That's the storm surge forecast. And I want you to see this as well. Look at the wind and the direction of that wind. That is going to push all of the water, very shallow water, across the uh, eastern sections of the Gulf of Mexico. That is why storm surge, the wind threat here, potential for 110 mile per hour, or higher across the Big Bend. And then check that out. Rainfall will lead to flash flooding as well. Lots to cover here. Yeah, no question. Please keep us updated. Listen to authorities if you're down there. Derek Van Dam, thanks so much. All right. All right, now to Russia. After days of speculation, Russian officials have confirmed that Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is one of 10 people killed after the private jet they were on fell out of the sky, landing in a fiery crash near Moscow. Investigators said DNA tests established all of the victims' identities. It all happened exactly two months to the day that the longtime Putin ally attempted an armed rebellion against Russia's military command, but called it off just short of reaching Moscow. CNN's Matthew Chance is joining us live now uh, from Moscow. Uh, there are still a lot of unanswered questions, but we now have the answer to one. It was Yevgeny Prigozhin, among others, killed in that crash. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a very quick, short statement from the Russian Investigative Committee saying that basically they'd done genetic tests on all the human remains uh, that they'd recovered from the, from the, the crash scene, um, the crash taking place last Wednesday, of course. And they found that everybody who was on the passenger list, including Yevgeny Prigozhin, has been confirmed as, as dead. And so that's, the, that's what we got from the, the Russian officials in terms of confirming Yevgeny Prigozhin's um, a death. Um, it brings to an end, uh, at least, or answers at least one of those very important questions about what happened, what took place during that plane crash, and of course brings to the end, uh, in dramatic fashion, a very controversial uh, Russian figure. He carved out a pivotal role in Russia's Ukrainian war. Often visiting his Wagner mercenaries near the front lines in Bakhmut where he'd sent them to fight what became a very personal battle, not just against Ukrainian forces, but with Russia's own military leadership, whom he regularly condemned as incompetent as thousands of his hired fighters were killed. Here, Prigozhin points at a pile of dead bodies next to him and launched into a tirade. Those who didn't give us ammunition will go to hell and eat their intestines, he shouts. Then he named Russia's defense minister and army chief. You animals are sitting there, he says, and think you've the right to decide their lives, he bawls. It was extraordinary criticism of Russia's high command. And he followed it up with unprecedented action leading what he called a march for justice towards Moscow, effectively a Wagner military uprising that challenged Kremlin authority. 
a deal was done to call off the rebellion as Prigozhin's forces advanced on the Russian capital. But a furious President Putin called it a stab in the back from a man he regarded as loyal. It was in the service to the Kremlin, first as its catering contractor in the 1990s that earned Prigozhin the nickname Putin's chef. And Prigozhin emerged as one of Russia's most powerful figures. Wagner His Wagner mercenaries at the behest of the Kremlin were active in Ukraine, the Middle East and several African states, where human rights groups accused them of horrific abuses. But Prigozhin was much more than just Putin's chef turned Putin's warlord. He was Putin's troll as well. Setting up this notorious troll factory in St. Petersburg, the Internet Research Agency, where Internet provocateurs were paid by Prigozhin to distort the US political debate around 2016 presidential elections. Prigozhin was sanctioned by the US, but denied any involvement in election meddling. He denied links with Wagner too. But with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, that mask was discarded. After his abortive uprising in June, Prigozhin and his Wagner forces were officially exiled to neighbouring Belarus. But the Wagner leader continued to travel freely, even visiting the Kremlin to discuss the group's future role. Prigozhin's most recent video showed him speaking in an unidentified African state, where he said he and Wagner would continue to promote Russian interests. But it wasn't to be. Back in Russia, his private jet was recorded plunging from the skies on a flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Russian investigators confirm all 10 people on board, including Prigozhin, were killed. A dramatic end to a controversial figure. All right, Sarah, well, you're right. We've got uh, the death of Prigozhin confirmed by the authorities, but there's still no answers on what caused that crash, that plane, to plunge out of the sky. Sarah. Yeah, that's the big remaining question as to whether or not it was purposeful. Matthew Chance, thank you so much live for us from Moscow. Well, coming up, you're going to want to stay with us. We've got brand new CNN reporting that digs into how House Speaker Kevin McCarthy plans to move ahead with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Stay with us. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is defending comments he made last week comparing a black lawmaker to the Ku Klux Klan. At a campaign stop in Iowa on Friday, the GOP hopeful said this about Democrat and black congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley, she's in the Congress today. She's a member of the squad. Her words, not mine. We don't want any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. Literally, word for word, I'm not putting any words in anybody's mouth. Ibram Kendi wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I wrote Woke Inc. It was a pretty successful book. His sold more copies than mine. Here's what it says. Opening lines. The remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So the other side will gaslight you when you say this stuff. It's like, oh, you're just making that critical race theory stuff up. No, no, no. I'm, these aren't my words. These are the words of the modern grand wizards of the modern KKK. 
Now, when challenged by CNN's Dana Bash yesterday, Ramaswamy doubled down. I think it is the same spirit to say that I can look at you and based on just your skin color, that I know something about the content of your character, that I know something about the content of the viewpoints you're allowed to express. For Ayanna Presley to tell okay, me that because of my skin color, I can't express my views, that is wrong. It is divisive. That is it is a, driving hate that is in this a debate. country. Uh, she fact-checked him, by the way, uh, there and uh, deserves credit for that. John Avalon and Mara Gillespie are back with us. Thank you so much for sticking around. Uh, this is hard to listen to um, because the Klan um, flogging, mutilating, killing, hanging, and he's saying that the first black congresswoman of Massachusetts is the same as the KKK. What, who is he trying to get, just get attention or is he trying to get voters using this kind of trash? Both, primarily attention. Um, but the idea that reverse racism is the real racism is something that presumably plays to the base. And look, you got to separate this out, right? The, the, your point you're making about any comparison to the KKK, let alone to a black female congressman. The KKK is a terrorist organization. It was a terrorist organization. At its inception, when former Confederate veterans got together in December of 1865 and used violence and voter intimidation to try to push back the gains that were on paper in the Constitution. That comparison is, is, is somewhere between idiotic and, and just historically awful. Now, you can have a good conversation in, about, look, identity politics, right. about the idea that a person's political beliefs should follow uh, their, their, their group identity. And, and that's a good debate to have, not just in Republican primaries, but everywhere. You want to talk about Ibram Kendi and, and really dig into whether anti-racism actually helps the country heal and move forward. Let's have that debate. But once you start throwing the hand grenades of comparison to the KKK, particularly to a black female congressman, congresswoman, it, it's beyond insulting and, and the debate shuts down. So, Maura, John kind of hits at a key point here. The debate on the issues itself or the debate... Uh, just generally, is a totally fine debate to have and certainly a debate that I think has moved to the forefront over the course of the last five, six, seven years. No question about it. But then listen to Ramaswamy also in Iowa say this. I've never once encountered that yet. I'm sure the, I'm sure the boogeyman white supremacist exists somewhere in America. I've just never met him. <laughs> never seen one. Never met one in my life, right? Maybe I'll meet a, uh, maybe I'll meet a unicorn sooner. And, and maybe those exist too. More, I, th I think my question is less, look, this is performative and it's intentional and he's doing it for a reason, uh, the same way he was right. talking about his book uh, and, and how well it had done in the midst of doing all this. But you've been a Republican staffer, you've been inside a Republican conference, as that Republican conference evolved quite a bit over the course of the last several years on issues like this in particular, and I think strategies, hyperbolic strategies like this. Why? What's, what's the play here? when you hear something like this? He's following the Trump playbook to a T. Mm. He's watched how far Trump pushed his boundaries, saying that he could stand on you know, streets in New York and shoot someone, and still he would have his loyal fan base. Ramaswamy has seen that and is testing his own boundaries, seeing how far he can take it. Because let's be honest, he's put $15 million of his own money, maybe even more, into his campaign. And so now he's looking for that free earned media, and he's getting it by saying inflammatory things mm -hmm. and really trying to appeal to Trump voters. But what they should be really asking is, if you, Vivek, think that Trump is the greatest president of our time or on earth or whatever he said at the debate— then why are you running? Why are you running against him? What he's really doing here is just trying to get attention, as John pointed out, and he can push the boundaries because Trump can. 
All right, more, John. There's a lot more to dig into on all of this, including Ramaswamy running against the guy who's the greatest president, in his words, mm-hmm. in history, uh, and the attention-getting mechanisms he uses, utilizes more. John, thanks so much, guys. All right, thanks. And it just so happens all that conversation happens. Today marks 60 years since the March on Washington, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I Have a Dream speech will be joined by Martin Luther King Jr. III about his father's legacy and our country's efforts to fulfill that dream. Dad would probably say, now is the time. We must preserve, protect, and expand democracy. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. If I could speak to my grandfather today, I would say, I am sorry we still have to be here to rededicate ourselves to finishing your work and ultimately realizing your hidden dream. That was Martin Luther King Jr.'s 15-year-old granddaughter, Yolanda Renee King, speaking at the March on Washington event in D.C. over the weekend. Thousands of people gathered in the nation's capital where Dr. King gave his iconic I Have a Dream speech and spoke of a more just and equitable America. Today marks 60 years since that march. Later today, President Biden and Vice President Harris will meet with relatives of Martin Luther King Jr. and organizers of that historic march. And in a new op-ed in The Washington Post, President Biden says we must keep marching toward Dr. King's dream. He writes, quote, while we've never fully lived up to that promise as a nation, we've never fully walked away from it either. Each day of the Biden-Harris administration, we continue the march forward. Joining us now, global human rights leader and son of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Martin Luther King III. Sir, thanks so much for taking the time uh, on this incredibly important day, on this anniversary, but also in the wake of what we saw just this weekend in Jacksonville, Florida. And and I think these types of moments underscore the fact that the job isn't finished, the dream hasn't been fulfilled. And I wonder how you think of moments like today uh, where you look back at such history and yet still see so many problems. Well, maybe it says, and thank you for the opportunity to share on this day as we observe this anniversary. Uh, Maybe it says that we, in a sense, continue history, and yet somehow we have to move forward. Uh, I must first say to the victims, uh, the family members who've lost loved ones, um, my condolences I send to them. But there's something wrong with the nation where this continues to happen over and over again. Um, If you remember in 1963, about three weeks after the March on Washington, four little girls lost their lives in the 16th Street Baptist Church because of bombing. Every time there seems to be a sense of a a forward movement, there's always the inevitable setback. The fact of the matter is hate is being promoted in this country. And we've got to change that. And we've got to do something about it now. Not tomorrow, not next week, but now. Mr. King, I'm curious what you think your father would have thought about the way we are with politics today. Uh, We just heard one of the presidential candidates saying that he's never met a racist and it's like finding a unicorn in this country. Where do you think he would think about what's happening in our political world today? Well, I think, number one, had he lived, we would be on a totally different trajectory. 
and perhaps we would be dealing with some other kind of issues, but not these issues, because he constantly talked about providing positive imagery and not uh, elevating uh, the, the negative. We, we, I mean, this is not to criticize you as a network or any one network, but when your mantra is, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads, that's something wrong with that. Uh, we need to have, we've got to create more positivity in this nation. And we've got to figure out how do we, again, communicate without, disagree without being disagreeable. That's what dad did throughout his life. That's what my mom, that climate has to be created. It doesn't just happen on its own. Sir, I was, I was struck reading, uh, you had an opinion piece in the Washington Post on the 50th anniversary, so 10 years ago. And the key elements of that piece, including one line, although significant progress has been made in some areas, too many Americans have inadequate opportunities to escape poverty, joblessness, discrimination, social neglect, and violence. You talk about gun violence throughout the piece. So many of the core issues in that piece are still core issues we are talking about debating and not really agreeing on solutions today. Why? Well, I think, number one, we have gone down a, 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 a spiral of going backward instead of moving forward. Uh, again, we created what we call a, a huge coalition for this 60th anniversary, where we had blacks and Jews and we had um, Latino and, and, and Native Americans. We had the LGBTQIA community. We had labor. Uh, this was the one of the largest coalitions that has ever existed. Uh, we had the Chinese American community, uh, so Asian Americans. The point is, the trajectory has got to change. And we keep going down this negative hole. We have to figure out how do we create a, a positive energy, a positive, as my father used to talk about. That's what I'm dedicated to, building coalitions to say America is better than it is acting at this time. We have an opportunity and we must, we, we got to learn nonviolence also. We, we've accepted a culture of violence. We must create a culture of nonviolence. Uh, that makes us a better nation. Darkness will never put out darkness. Only light can do that. Violence will never stomp out violence, Dad said. Only love and nonviolence can do that. I think that's why people really, he was such a, a revered figure because he was able to be kind, but also be very clear about what was happening to black people in this country in particular. I do want to ask you about your meeting today. I know you're meeting with President Biden and Vice President Harris. What is the message you, you would like to send to them? What would you like them to take away from the meeting? So I think there are probably a couple to three areas. Number one, we had to figure out how to bolster the opportunity for people to vote. We still have a, a system of voting uh, that does not allow everyone the same kind of access that draconian laws put in place in some states. Dad used to say a voteless people is a powerless people. And the one most important step we could take is that short step to the ballot box. The second thing is we got to do some more about hate crimes and hatred that is being spewed, whether it is figuring out how do we address what the internet does. There's got to be a constructive way to that. And, and the final piece is, again, we as a nation, we got to work together and not work at it. We, we've, we're turning on each other. How do you create the climate to turn to each other? Because when we as a nation turn to each other, we're interested in how do we bolster people, not how do we suppress and divide people. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for coming on on this really important anniversary, 60 years since that march. 
uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, she's done it again. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles has broken yet another record. We're going to have more on that when we come back. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles breaking yet another record last night. She became the first person to win eight national all-around titles at the U.S. Gymnastics Championships. Wow. Sam, you just don't want it to end. Wow is a good response there. That floor routine earning Biles a standing ovation, obviously, from the crowd. It's only her second elite competition since she took two years off from professional gymnastics. Biles said the win feels really special for her. I've been doing it for so long. I feel like I don't think about numbers. I think about my performance. And I think overall I hit eight for eight. It's eight. I guess it's a lucky number this year. Now, the gymnast would not reveal whether she plans to take aim at next year's Paris Olympics, but she didn't rule it out either. Eight. I can't even come to work on time eight straight Honestly, days. Honestly, she is just incredible. She's pretty great. Incredible. I get chills watching it because I'm so worried something's going to happen, and it doesn't. And she just blows my mind. Hey, can we do another hour of this? If you want to. Seeing in this morning continues <laughs> right now. Two key hearings in Atlanta, Mark Meadows will argue that his case in Georgia should be transferred from state to federal court. Was he doing something that was part of his job in good faith? The special counsel wants January of next year. That seems very ambitious, but I think she's gonna lean in that direction. Jacksonville, Florida, where three people are dead in what police are calling a racially motivated shooting. I thought racism was behind us, but evidently it's not. The division has to stop. The hate has to stop. The rhetoric has to stop. Floridians are preparing for severe weather in anticipation of Tropical Storm Idalia. We have mobilized 1,100 National Guardsmen. There's even forecast to be a 100 mile per hour storm. That may even be conservative. Russian investigators say genetic tests confirm that Rogozhin was among the 10 people killed. It brings to an end the life of a very controversial figure. But there are still lots of questions about why that plane crashed. There are literally tens of thousands of these guys doing Putin's bidding all over the world. 60 years since the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King Jr. laid out his dreams for the future of America. We have to take on the responsibility to make sure that we do not repeat the same mistake and that we fulfill the dream. Not tomorrow. We got to do something now. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Sarah Seidner is here hanging out and in the all chair. about it. I'm right? all about I'm ready. It's now seven. I'm ready. Let's and it go. is a good day to be ready because we have a lot of news going on. We are bracing right now for very big developments in both election subversion cases against former President Donald Trump at 10 a.m. Eastern, three hours from now. Judges in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. will hold simultaneous hearings and may give us new details about the timing and the substance in the cases about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis will be the first prosecutor to sketch out parts of her evidence and arguments in the anti-racketeering case against the former president and his co-conspirators. This could be a kind of mini trial, if you will, as ex-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows tries to get his state case, excuse me, moved to federal 
court. And at the same time in Washington, D.C., a judge will weigh arguments from the special prosecutor and Donald Trump's defense team over the timing of the federal trial. Jack Smith's office wants to start right after the new year, while the ex-president is pushing for way after the election. He wants an April 2026 date. So let's go ahead and bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and focus on what's going on in Georgia this morning. Uh, what exactly is removal? How does it work here? Yeah, so this is a big argument today. Removal is a rarely used law, but it's going to be vital here. Essentially what this says is if a person is a federal official or former federal official and they get charged with state level crimes, they can move the case over into federal court if, and this is the big if, if they can show they were acting under color of such federal office. Now, Mark Meadows has already made this argument. He'll have his hearing today. He was saying, I was acting as White House chief of staff. Jeffrey Clark has made this argument. He was a DOJ official. Donald Trump has not yet made this argument, but I think it's very likely that he will. So Fonnie Willis, of course, is going to respond. No, you were not acting as a federal official. You were committing crimes and therefore you were outside of your federal scope. And we'll get our first sense of how the judge comes out on that. So walk through what we're actually going to see in court today. Yeah. So first of all, the argument today involving Mark Meadows motion to remove will happen in federal court in Georgia. There will be no TV camera, so we won't physically see what's happening. But this is going to be a federal judge making this decision. Now, Fonnie Willis is going to put on a little bit of a case. She has subpoenaed Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, who, of course, was on the other side of the infamous call where Trump asked him to just find 11,780 votes. Important to remember, Mark Meadows is on that call. He initiates the call. And that's the famous quote. But let's remember, Mark Meadows actually does a little bit of talking on this call. At one point, he says to Brad Raffensperger, what I'm hopeful for is there's some way we can find some kind of agreement to look at this a little bit more fully. You know, the president mentioned Fulton County. A little bit of bureaucratic doublespeak here. But at issue will be, well, what was Mark Meadows really trying to do? Was he chief of staffing or was he involved in campaign activity, political activity for Trump? And to that end, another witness who Fonnie Willis has subpoenaed for today is this Georgia investigator, Francis Watson. At one point, really importantly, Mark Meadows texted her looking for a way to speed up the Fulton County signature verification in order to have the results before January 6th, if the Trump campaign can assist financially. So I think Fonnie Willis is going to point to that and say, right. look, this is political what he's doing. OK, so. Take a step back here, because immediately after this case was brought, everybody was talking about moving it to yeah. from state to federal. Why? What's the strategic advantage here? If you are a defendant in this case, first of all, I think you're going to like the jury pool more. If it stays state, the entire jury pool will be drawn from Fulton County, which voted 26 percent only for Donald Trump in 2020. If you get it moved federal, you're going to be drawing from the northern district of Georgia, the federal district, which includes Cobb County which went 42% for Trump, not great, but better than 26. Cherokee County went 68% for Trump. So you're going to have a more pro-Trump jury in the federal court. Also, in the federal courts, no matter where this case is tried, it's going to go up to the mid-level court of appeals, whether in state court or federal court. But if you get into the federal court, you have the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, famously conservative, really seen as the second most conservative of the 13 appellate courts in the United States. They've ruled against Trump, but if you're Trump, you want that 11th Circuit. And finally, most importantly, if you get into federal court, your next move, if Mark Meadows gets there or Donald Trump, you ask for dismissal on the basis of immunity. If you can show that you were within the scope of your job and that you were not doing anything more than was necessary or proper, then you can get the case dismissed, and that's the whole ball of wax. All right, Ellie Honig, we're going to dig in more on this, sir. All right. Thank you, Phil. Joining us now, CNN anchor and senior political analyst. Joining us again, I should say, John Avalon, 
and former Deputy White House Press Secretary under Donald Trump, Sarah Matthews, as well as CNN political analyst. You can come over here now. It's fine. And national <laughs> politics reporter for The New York Times, Esteed Herndon. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, first to you, Esteed, what, what do you expect uh, from the hearings today? Yeah, as Ellie laid out, it seems like it's going to be uh, a kind of preview of the of the arguments to come. And then most importantly, you have the D.A. kind of making the initial salvo in those cases. And you have the Trump defendants kind of giving a preview of what could end up being the president's defense from the political perspective, which is where I spend you know most of my time. This continues the kind of saga that has a really crescendo to this point. You know, for a lot of these indictments, it has felt like kind of one after another, a kind of wash, a waterfall of information that was kind of washed over voters. I think that that mugshot and this kind of latest round of Georgia indictments kind of broke through in a different way. And so I think you're going to see more attention on this case. You're going to see the kind of Trump never surrender argument being kind of tested on a national front. And we don't necessarily know how that's going to land. We know among the Republican base itself, it's caused people to really rally around him in a kind of short term way. But we don't know how that hits with the public at large. And we don't know if the other candidates are going to actually use this as an opportunity to try to attack him. And so I think that the continuing kind of development of facts in Georgia might have some new political consequences for us because of the pure reason that for this case specifically, whether it's because it has a RICO charge, whether it's because it has other uh, defendants involved, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, some uh, some of maybe familiar facts after January 6th, it does feel like this indictment is cutting through the noise in a way that maybe the last couple ones from the special prosecutor didn't really hit for voters. Sarah, to that point, I mean, Despite the fact that never surrender while you're having a mugshot taken because you just surrendered <laughs> seems counterintuitive uh, to some degree. But, but the idea that it's cutting through, the idea that, you know, we're going to have a, a hearing today where facts and people are going to be reminded of what exactly happened, the calls that were made, how people were involved. Uh, do you get the sense that in a Republican primary electorate, not the 35 percent rock solid Trump base, but the general Republican electorate that perhaps this does cut through? I don't know if it will cut through, to be honest. I think that um, while the mugshot definitely brought more attention to this case, I think it also kind of makes Trump into a martyr. Obviously, we saw his campaign capitalize on it, and they had huge fundraising numbers come out of it. I think they said it was their best fundraising day that they've had. 7.1 million total, I think 4 point something during yeah. that day, yeah. Exactly, but I do think that there is a large amount of indictment fatigue. I think there is, um, people don't understand the differences between the cases. I don't think that... Um, necessarily, it was helpful that Alvin Bragg's indictment dropped first. Mm -hmm. I think that most people found that to be politically motivated. And so then I think that that kind of stained the other indictments, even though I believe that these other indictments have a large amount of evidence and that the Trump uh, team should be very worried about these other cases. But I think in the court of public opinion, they um, probably are doing better because it's hard for people to understand the differences between the cases. John, I'm curious um, what you think this is going to do, because you can win, obviously, uh, the primary, but then you have to win the general right. election. What about independence, the all-important independence? So glad you asked, because that is really where the focus needs to be. It's not just, you know, there's a short-term bump because of negative partisanship among the primary base. It's ultimately you nominate someone to win a general election. So let's talk about independent voters. First of all, they're a plurality of American voters, more self-identified independents than Democrats or Republicans. And two-thirds of uh, independent voters have said they don't want to see Donald Trump back in the White House. That's a problem, not just for Donald Trump, but for the Republican Party if they continue to nominate him. And instead makes the point, look, we're in unprecedented territory. 
I, I think we can say with a degree of certainty that multiple indictments on 91 counts does not, does not help Donald Trump with the American people at large or independent voters. It may have a short-term bump in a primary, but the idea that this helps in a general election, it's not just it's unprecedented, that's just, I think, not reality-based. Ellie, on the legal side of things, the idea of Meadows moving first, he moved very quickly. I think you ask kind of across the board, regardless of your political affiliation, there's a respect for his legal team, the people that he has around him in this case. Should we read anything into the fact that he went first, that he's moving first and separately from the former president? Yeah, so it's interesting because I think he has the strongest removal case of any of the three people we've talked about. Because the chief of staff, I think, has very broad responsibilities. He has the ability to say, I was doing what chief of staffs ought to do. I was setting up meetings. I was setting up phone calls. I was coordinating communications between various political actors. I think when you're the president giving the instructions, it's a little harder to hide from the instructions you've given. Jeffrey Clark was over at DOJ. I, I don't, I mean, he has a, a, not a great argument, but he has a colorable argument. But I do wonder to what extent, we don't know this right now, to what extent are they coordinating? To what extent are these defendants getting together saying, you go first, then we'll go? I mean, it's interesting to me that Trump has not yet filed his motion. Maybe he wants to see how it goes with Meadows and Clark, use them as test balloons. But, uh, but there's a lot of moving parts hold here. On, hold on, my friend. Yeah. I mean, and you know, this is for, for you and Sarah, I guess. But where in the job description for chief of staff does it say, help a sitting president try to overturn an election? Right, no, this is what I'm just, you know. No, but, but the problem, the, the, the That's the not a fine print footnote. I don't think it says that. I've okay. looked in the Constitution. Okay. It doesn't say that, but, <laughs> but here, Sarah was in the white, maybe. Did you, did you see that? <laughs> but but th- that sort of nicely underscores why this is a difficult argument, because both sides are a little bit circular. What Meadows and Trump are going to say is, I pled not guilty. I'm entitled to the presumption of innocence at this point. I claim that I'm acting outside this, within the scope of my job. Therefore, I should be removed. Fonnie Willis is going to say, I've charged you with crimes. Therefore, you are committing crimes. Therefore, you don't get to get removed. So that's going to be the argument here. Um, Sarah, I just, I'm curious about this. In, in, I'm moving to another case. But in the documents case, you're already seeing some cooperation happening um, by someone who changed attorneys and decided to get a defense that is not paid for by Donald Trump and whoever else is paying for those attorneys that are linked to Trump. Do you see more of this happening as these cases get closer and closer and closer? Do you think that the people around him will start to break down and say, I don't want to get popped for this. I'm going to cooperate. Yeah, I think that we're going to see it in multiple cases. Obviously, the one that you referenced, the documents case, we, um, suspect I think there is a name out there of people of someone who that they think it is who flipped. And I think that that's the right call, because at the end of the day, Donald Trump demands loyalty from everyone, but he gives loyalty to no one. And he would be so quick to throw any of these people under the bus. And so I think that this is um, crucial. We saw this happen with the January 6th uh, Congressional Committee with Cassidy Hutchinson. She at first had a Trump appointed attorney who um, was funding her legal fees and they wanted her to not recall events that she very much did recall. And then she was compelled to do the right thing, switch lawyers, hire someone who was acting in her best interest and not Donald Trump's best interests. I think that's a really good point to end on. John Avalon, Sarah, thank you so much. And of course, you, Ellie. You're just everywhere. Don't ever forget Estad. Don't forget Estad. Oh, Estad, I'm so sorry. Trust me, no matter what, Estad's... But you're still in our hearts. Besides having great points, Estad is also wearing better shoes than all of us today. And that's just a guarantee, even if we can't see them. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Well, the Justice Department is now investigating whether the deadly shooting of three black people at a store in Jacksonville, Florida, was a hate crime. The mayor of Jacksonville is going to join us live next. And new CNN reporting digs into how White House Speaker, sorry, House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy plans to move ahead with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And that's what they're calling this uh, act of racism. And I just feel like you was a coward. You went in there and shot these innocent people for nothing that you didn't even know. And then you took your own life. That's just the cowardly way to go. That was a family member of one of the three victims killed in Jacksonville, Florida, in what the Justice Department is now investigating as a hate crime. Investigators say a white gunman killed three black people at a Dollar General store on Saturday before taking his own life. The gunman was identified as 21-year-old Christopher Palmetter. This is one of the two weapons that was in his possession. The local sheriff says the gunman drew swastikas on the AR-15-style rifle, used racial slurs, and left behind racist writings. We're doing so much to, to try to determine what exactly led to this. The manifesto is, is, a, is quite frankly, uh, the diary of a madman. Um, he was, he was, I mean, he was just completely irrational. Um, but with his irrational, with his irrational thoughts, he knew what he was doing. He had 100%. He was 100% lucid. He knew what he was doing. Now, the victims have been identified as 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 19-year-old Anult Laguerre, and 29-year-old Gerald Gallion. Joining us now is Jacksonville Mayor Donna Deegan. Uh, Mayor Deegan, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, condolences to your community. I know you spoke with President Biden uh, last night, I believe. What, what was his message to you in that call? I did. Well, he was very gracious and, and obviously offered his condolences for our community and just offered any help that, that he could give. Um, and I appreciated that very much. You, you said in the wake of this shooting um, that there are days where it feels like you're going backwards to some degree. The community is going backwards. Maybe the country to some degree is going backwards. Uh, how big of a shock has this been to the community? Well, unfortunately, I would say that it hasn't been much of a shock, Phil. Uh, this is this is something that happens all too often, and uh, we we have a, a, a violent gun problem uh, in our community. We have a violent gun problem in our country. We know that. Uh, we also have a problem with racism, and and I think that every step on the path that that we take either is a step toward more unity, which is something that I desperately want for my community, or it is a step in the other direction. And I think that that we all want unity. I was grateful that the governor came to our our um, vigil last night in Jacksonville, because I think it's important for him to see up close and personal the pain that this community is in. Uh, he offered some help with, with security at Edward Waters College. Uh, but I think that any sort of step toward unity starts with more communication, but it also starts with facing the facts of that we don't always say the things that we should be saying in order to to step toward seeing our own and each other's humanity. And I think that's really what we have to deal with here in a very honest way. You mentioned Governor DeSantis' visit. Uh, you were with him at the vigil. I want to play something because it, it was striking uh, the response that he got at, at one point during the vigil. Take a listen. Don't worry about it. We've already been looking at to identify some to be able to help one, make sure Mayor, you, you mentioned he's offered assistance. Uh, he was there in person at the vigil. What's the expert? Why do you think that response transpired while he was there? 
Well, listen, I, I, as I said, I give him credit. He walked into a crowd that he knew um, was going to be in opposition to many of, of his policies. And, and so I, I'm glad he was there to listen. Um, and I, I, I personally think that, that that's a step in the right direction. Uh, but I think he does need to hear those folks. I mean, it, it is a community that has been injured over and over and over again. And either we are walking in the direction of truth when it comes to our systemic racism in, in our city, in our state, and in our country, or we are in denial about that and creating policies that, that don't really help in that regard. And so uh, I think any, as I said, any steps in the right direction start with better communication. So uh, I think he heard from a, from a community that is hurting and, and, and absolutely devastatingly tired. One of the striking things in listening to the sheriff's press conference yesterday, your remarks yesterday as well, the guns were purchased legally. Uh, there weren't really red flags, uh, at least in the near term lead up uh, to what happened yesterday or to what, the tragedy that occurred. What could have been done to stop this based on current laws, current regulations? Well, it, you know, I, I have to say I, I'm going to give credit to our our sheriff, Sheriff Waters, for calling this what it was, a, a racist attack. Uh, but he further said that there really wasn't anything that could have been done legally in this situation. And therein lies the problem. Uh, these guns are, are far too accessible to folks, these, these AR-15 type of, of guns. Um, and frankly, if we want to go deeper than that, um, if you want to go further than the guns, you got to address the hate. And you've got to address the fact that we don't seem to want to acknowledge uh, the truth of, of our history and, and the way that we should be dealing with it. So uh, I don't know legally, uh, given the way the laws are written right now in the state of Florida, that there was anything that could have been done. And, and therein lies the frustration for me. You know, uh, one last question before I let you go. Our colleague, uh, uh, Juliette Kayam, had a column in the Atlantic, or piece in the Atlantic, where she talks about the shooter's actions yesterday were not just a hate crime, they're a performance for all the world to see. This is the age of mass shooting as production. He wanted to make sure his intentions were known, hate-filled screeds were written to his parents, law enforcement, the media. He was leaving nothing unsaid. Uh, one, I, I, uh, striking because I think it's incredibly accurate, but two, your response to that a, as a leader, as an elected official, when you know that that exists out there and it's directly affecting your community and also the country writ large. Well, look, I, I understand why some people don't want to give more glory to folks that, that, are, that, that clearly want the attention when they do things like this. But it does shine a very bright light on what we're dealing with in our community, in our state, and in our country. And uh, I think light is the best disinfectant. So if we can shine a light on the racism that does exist and the fact that, that it still exists structurally in our country, then we can begin to deal with it. And that is my sincere hope, is that out of this, we will come to better unity through listening and better understanding. All right, Mayor Donna Deegan, we appreciate your time. Our condolences to your community. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Phil. All right, preparations are underway along Florida's Gulf Coast as Tropical Storm Idalia rapidly gains strength. Hurricane and storm surge watches are in effect along the state's west coast. Idalia is threatening to hit the state as a major Hurricane. Let's get right to CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam, who is watching this very, very closely. How destructive might the storm be, Derek? 
Yeah, using the words from the National Hurricane Center, they're talking about rapid intensification. Last time we saw that, Hurricane Ian, we all know how that played out. So it's time to take this storm seriously. Your last full day to prepare is today because we do expect that first arrival of tropical storm force winds for early morning hours along the southern peninsula of Florida. By the way, this is not just a Florida storm. It could impact the Carolinas into southern Georgia as well. This is crucial. We are starting to see that northerly turn and the storm is becoming more and more organized near the Yucatan Channel. Here is the forecast track. You can see how it runs parallel with the Gulf Coast of Florida. So the West Coast, this is where we're concerned about Wednesday into Thursday. And yeah, that's a category three, a major hurricane. We've seen this unfold before. Uh, with, of course, as being a game of miles, any track or deviation to the west or to the east has major implications for so many population centers. But Sarah, we've got tropical storm and hurricane watches as well as storm surge watches posted, as you said. Back to you. All right, Derek Van Dam, thank you so much. We'll be watching that all morning. Appreciate it. Help. Yeah, closely. Well, they almost missed last week's Republican debate because of a tour to Achilles. But Doug Burgum still got on the stage, still made his case to the voters, and he's going to do it again here in studio next. Every minute that these eight candidates spend talking about the past instead about the future is time that is just the, the you know who loves it? Biden loves it, but China loves it when we're talking about the past. Okay. I was the only one that rate that uh, said very clearly that I would not support him. Uh, and so I was surprised at that. That didn't seem to be a difficult question to me. That's former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson referring to this moment at last week's debate when candidates were asked if they would support Donald Trump, even if he ended up being convicted. Please raise your hand if you would. There are only two in that stage that did not raise their hand. Chris Christie raised his hand, but later gestured with a pointed finger, saying that Trump's conduct should not be normalized. The moment underscoring the former president's grip on the party, even as he faces four indictments at this point. Joining us now is one of the Republican contenders on that stage, Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota. Thank you so much for being here. So the obvious question here is, how'd you hurt your leg? No, I'm just kidding. We, we all know. Everyone knows he hurt himself during a basketball game and he is somehow up and walking toward your Achilles, as we understand it. So thank you for making the trip here. Um, why would you support Donald Trump? I was just going to say, yeah, the weather report on earlier was raining threes right before I, right before I blew my Achilles. So that should be part of the. Uh... Okay, so there was no dunking, but there were threes. It was okay. Yeah, Got it. it. Starting to pour. <laughs> um, now to now to the debate. Why is it that you raise your hand? Why support Donald Trump if he is convicted, especially if he's convicted of trying to overturn an election, which affects democracy? Well, I just thought this was the goofiest question of the whole night. Everybody on the stage, to get on the stage, signed a thing that said, hey, you're, we're going to support a Republican candidate in 2024 if it's not you. You're not going to run as an independent. You're going to support a Republican. So then they asked this question, which is hypothetical, when everybody's on the stage, including myself, I'm pouring my time, my energy, uh, everybody that's supporting us to actually be the nominee. So, you know, the question is, you're going to support yourself? Absolutely, I'm supporting myself. But these hypotheticals, uh, and, it, and it just goes into this whole seven by 24 hour cable news clickbait thing around all of these indictments. When we're out talking to candidates, which I've been, I went to New Hampshire for three days. Now I've been in New York the last 24 hours. When we're talking to people, they're not, they're asking about 
inflation. I'm, when I'm talking to a lobsterman in New Hampshire, you know, they're like, hey, I can't, I'm not making my payments because how much I'm spending on the diesel to run my boat. And then you turn on the TV and all you hear about is this stuff, but that's not what the people are actually concerned about. Interest rates at a 22 year high, they're like, is the American dream falling away between inflation, 700 bucks more a month for the average family. And I, you know, I grew up, my mom, you know, my dad died when I was a freshman in high school. My mom went back to work raising three kids. I, I understand what it's like if you're a working mom to actually put food on the table. And, and then I was growing up, every job I had, I took a shower at the end of the day, working on the farm, working on the ranch, working as a, the rain elevator, working as a chimney sweep. Americans today are actually concerned that, you know, how are they going to make things meet? And all that all we talk, they were talking about on the stage, and I, and I said it that night, I said it again, if we're going to spend all our time talking about that, you know who loves that? China loves that. We're in a Cold War with China, and they got a 100-year plan. They're, tr they're doing everything they can to beat us, and we're just divided. And divisiveness now is a giant commercial business uh, in our country, so divisiveness let's start, sells. Let's start policy then. <laughs> the former president, regardless of your views about the indictments, he's A, the former president, and B, plus 30, 35, 40 in most national polling. And when you dig into those early states that you've been visiting, do you agree that a 10% tariff kind of across the board should be something, a policy that the U.S. should pursue? I think that the, the whole tariff uh, thing is just goofy as a standalone question if you're talking about economic tariffs. Because uh, look what we're doing. Standalone right. question or standalone policy? Because it was the former president who said 10% tariff across the board seems to make sense for him. Well, I don't think it makes sense across the board. I mean, we, ha we have to be strategic about it. And we take a look at e whether it's the former or the current president. You take a look at Biden. You know, first of all, Putin doesn't even invade Ukraine if we don't have all of Western Europe dependent on, on Russian energy. I mean, the first thing we should do is sell energy to our friends and allies, stop buying it from our adversaries. But then when Putin does invade, what does it take us? How many months? Six months before we had sanctions on oil and gas? And then when, you know, in the meantime, Russia makes a bunch of money. Then we put sanctions on. Now Russian oil is 20% off. And now China's getting oil and gas at 20% off. And American farmers are paying so full price. So you believe price. that the sanctions should apply across the board, cutting off European allies to their access and just completely shutting down no, I'm, no, I'm saying Russian it, energy? You, so I'm saying... If you want to not have wars, if you want to not have World War III, we're in this Cold War with China, uh, which I was the only one on stage that actually mentioned that, and that's actually is the existential threat to our country, is that you've got to have a coordinated effort with your allies to get together. If a few countries put sanctions on Russian oil, it doesn't do anything other than turn Russia into the discount gas station for China, which helps the, the country that we're in this you know, head-on battle with. So I, in the White House, you've got to have somebody who understands the economy. I built a business from scratch that was operating. We had customers in 132 countries. And this idea that we're going to somehow, you know, try to run our country when you've got someone there now who's never worked in the private sector, hasn't worked, hasn't made payroll, like I have for all these different, you know, all these years, you know, someone who took a pay cut to make sure their team members could get paid. The, the economy is so globally interconnected and every job and every industry is changing with technology right now. And we've never had anybody in the White House that even understands that. I mean, you, two, million federal, two million federal employees, you want to reduce the cost of the federal government? Well, then digitize it like every other business, like this business has, and get some efficiency would going you, in the federal as government. As president, would you completely try and cut off ties, economic ties with China? Decouple or completely cut off? You can't, you can't decouple with the world's second largest economy. You can be strategic about it. But, you know, the way you win a Cold War is you get your economy sprinting as opposed to crawling like it is right now. And you start cutting red tape like we have in North Dakota. We passed 51 red tape reduction bills. 
this last year. We've got the highest GDP of any Republican. But strategically, what you're saying in terms of doing it strategically because of the interconnected nature of the global economy and also the U.S. and China being the two largest economies, isn't that essentially what this administration is doing to some degree? This administration had Blinken, Yellen and Kerry go over there this summer and none of them talked about energy with China. China imports 10 million barrels of, of oil every day. They're the largest importer in the world. We have an opportunity to be energy dominant in the United States. If you're going to have a negotiation with China, the first thing on the table is energy. And instead, we've got an energy policy in this country that I think was written by China because we're trying to kill the U.S. energy industry, move to all EVs, and then buy all of our batteries from China. If we're trying to strategically decouple, then why do we have an energy policy which is not good for the environment because China's making those batteries by tearing up the whole planet in the Congo, in Indonesia, and then they're building them in factories right. that are powered by coal because they're opening a coal plant every two weeks in China. Those are some of the really important issues. But let me just lastly ask you, if Donald Trump is, and right now he has the highest polling numbers, if he does become the nominee, would you be his vice president? No. I would not. And uh, ha happy to do lots of other things. I have fabulous uh, 30 years in the private sector, a lot of opportunities there. In his there. cabinet? I'm not running for a cabinet position. I mean, I'm not, I'm not selling a book. I'm not running for a cabinet. All I've ever done, CEO, entrepreneur, build businesses, attract talent, be successful, understand how the globe works, and lead stuff like, like the remarkable job, the remarkable story, the success story in North Dakota. We have the highest GDP of any Republican-led state in the nation. I mean, we've got our economy rolling there, we, and we've, we've done it, and we're doing it in all the things that people would want. We're the only state that said we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, and we're a huge energy state. Well, how do you do that? You do it with innovation as opposed to regulation. Our nation is always one with innovation. Go back to the Wright brothers. Go back to as far back as you want. The way we win is with innovation, and right now... We're killing innovation in this country. We're not funding innovation in this country. We're funding a bunch of ideology that it doesn't even do the thing that it's supposed to do, like save the environment. We, like I said, we do it better here than anywhere else in the world. All right, Governor Doug Burgum, you want to talk policy, man? I'm here. We'll, we will do that. I like talking policy. <laughs> well, I do too. And, 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 and an unequivocal no on the vice president. Uh, right. Should have had more on that on the debate because these are the things that matter to every American. We're running because we know if we get I'm those sure. things right, it'll approve the life of every American. Appreciate your time, sir. As Thank always. You. Thank you. Good luck with the Achilles. Thank you. Well, House Republicans are strategizing about how to initiate an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We're going to have new reporting on that coming up next. And Rite Aid stock plummeting Friday after the Wall Street Journal reported the drugstore is preparing to file for bankruptcy. The reason for that potential filing just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We've got some new reporting this morning. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top Republicans beginning to strategize how to move forward with an impeachment inquiry into President Biden this fall. But skeptical GOP lawmakers, no evidence, and a government funding that's set to expire, all critical factors that could complicate their timeline. CNN's Melanie Zanona joins us now with her new reporting. Uh, Mel, I think the initial question is we all try and figure out how to get to 218. They may not actually need 218 votes, which was the most interesting part of your piece among many interesting parts. Walk us through it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Phil. So just to walk viewers through the process, Republicans want to open an impeachment inquiry, which would be the first formal step towards impeachment proceedings. But there is no constitutional requirement that they actually need to have a floor vote. And because, as you mentioned, Kevin McCarthy doesn't actually have the votes right now amongst his conference. There's a lot of moderates and vulnerable Republicans who are still skeptical of this whole idea 
they are contemplating just skipping that floor vote altogether. And that would spare moderates from having to take a tough vote while allowing them to start to get the ball rolling on the impeachment process and hopefully, in their minds, give them more time to actually get some evidence for these allegations that they have yet to prove about President Joe Biden and his son's foreign business dealings. And not to mention, Phil, McCarthy is under enormous pressure from his right flank and from Donald Trump to show that he is taking action here and that he is moving forward on this process. And so I'm told he has spent some of the August recess telling former Republic, current Republicans that he is really serious about an impeachment inquiry and is strategizing about how to do that this fall. Phil. As soon as next month. It's great reporting. You can read the piece on CNN.com. Melanie Zanona, as always. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Now to your money this morning. Rite Aid stock nosedived more than 50% after the Wall Street Journal reported the retail pharmacy giant is preparing to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as it faces mounting costs linked to opioid lawsuits. The chain could also shutter about 400 stores nationwide. CNN's Julia Chatterley is joining us now. All right, let us know how this happened. Break this down for us that Rite Aid is in big trouble financially. They're totally embattled, even just as the business. They're losing money. They've got high debts, over $3 billion worth of debts. Um, a lot of that comes due in the next couple of years. So just as a business, they were already struggling. Then I think a lot of that's outweighed by the sheer extent of liabilities that they could face tied to the opioid crisis. According to the Wall Street Journal's reportings, we're talking about a thousand plus federal lawsuits that have all been consolidated in Ohio. They've got a, sumber, a similar number of state-based lawsuits and then the civil case that the Department of Justice hit them with just this year. What Chapter 11 bankruptcy allows them to do is buy breathing room. Mm. It allows the pharmacies to continue to run as a business, but that they can consolidate the debts. And that includes debts that they don't even know they have yet, aka potential legal costs and opioid lawsuits. Battle them all out together, find some kind of resolution. They don't know what those liabilities, the scale of those are going to be, but this suggestion in this report is that they're going to be treated as unsecured debt. So the hope is that in a Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceeding, these people eventually, if they do settle, will be able to get some of their money and the business will be able to continue to go as an ongoing concern. The company at this stage not confirmed anything, so it's, it's an open guess. But when you look at the financials of the business, it figures. Julia Chatterjee, yes. always lovely to see you. Thank you for coming. Well, it was just a week ago when Spain won its first title at the Women's World Cup, but the controversy over the kiss from the president of the country's soccer federation with a star player has since overshadowed that historic moment. How that organization in the world are responding, that's next. Spain's Soccer Federation is holding a, quote, extraordinary and urgent meeting today after its president, Luis Rubiales, was provisionally suspended by FIFA following a kiss with star player Jennifer Hermosa. Hermosa says she did not consent to being kissed by Rubiales, while Rubiales says the kiss was consensual. The federation has threatened to sue Hermosa, claiming she lied. Joining us now to discuss is Meg Lenahan, a senior writer for The Athletic, where she covers women's soccer. She also hosts the weekly podcast, Full Time with Meg Lenahan. Let's contextualize this first up top. This is following a World Cup victory. This is the moment of all moments for the Spain's, Spanish women's soccer team that they should be celebrating and celebrated. Yes. And yet we're at this point. We, a man has hijacked this. Right. Right. And it, I think it is 
unfortunately, both the blessing and the curse of women's soccer, that these big moments allow us to have these bigger conversations. But this should be the, the pinnacle of these players' career. And instead, we are talking about basically the entire, entire Spanish Federation melting down in real time. And we're not talking about the soccer. We're not talking about their accomplishment. We're also not really fundamentally talking about the protests that these players came in with mm. into the World Cup, because that was one of the major storylines of how is Spain going to function with players protested, sat out the World Cup. Some players didn't get called up. And we're not actually really talking about the fundamental issues that the players had. We're talking about a non-consensual kiss on stage. We're talking about this federation's the president's behavior. We're talking about the fact that he won't resign. You've reported on abuse across many different places, including the National Women's Soccer League. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the response that, that is being put out there by FIFA and by other governing bodies? Yeah, I think the governing bodies have not stepped up. Where's the adult in the room, right? Mm -hmm. That is kind of the fundamental question. We've seen FIFA now do, I think, the bare minimum in that they have suspended him for 90 days. They've also banned contact between the Federation and Hermoso, which is kind of, uh, we've never really seen anything quite like that. But UEFA, completely silent. Spain also wants to host the Men's World Cup in 2030. So there is this big political That's what I was going to ask. Is that yes. the dynamic here? Because I feel, I feel like I must be, be missing playing, a bunch of different it things. It has to be playing a role. But I think there is also just, you get the sense of these governing bodies worry what, accountability opens up, right? And I think we've seen that here in the U.S. where we have gone through this reckoning and we have had a massive investigation into behavior and conduct across the professional league, but also, you know, that bleeds into the national team. So we've, we've had that conversation. We're starting it, at least. There's still a lot of work to be done, but this is what we've seen. And, and what I think a lot of us are struggling with in the sport is that women have to win in order to be heard. So what about Haiti? What about Zambia? All of these other teams that came into a World Cup with struggles against their federations, against their coaches who are not being heard, but because this happened on the world's biggest stage and it has been hijacked, we're having this conversation. It's really unbelievable because these women should be, everyone should be just celebrating them and being excited for in the country soccer. for amazing, amazing soccer. Yes. And here we are. Yes. It's frustrating, to say the least. All right. Meg Linehan, thank you so much. Thank you. In just hours, two crucial court hearings involving two of the four cases against former President Donald Trump, one in Washington, D.C., and one, of course, in Fulton County in Atlanta. We are live outside of both of those courthouses with details next. Good Monday morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. We've got Sarah Seidner here, which is good because we have a lot of news. And it is. And we like today. news. We're bringing it today. <laughs> I'm trying. On Monday. And we're going to start with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who is set to lay out the details of her case against former President Trump. It's part of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, bid to get his own case moved to federal court. At the same time, Trump's legal team will appear in court in Washington, D.C. as part of his federal election interference case. The judge, by the way, could set a trial date for that case as soon as today. All that is the Justice Department is now investigating a deadly shooting in Jacksonville, Florida over the weekend as a hate crime. The sheriff there says a white gunman targeted and killed three black people at a store after first going to a predominantly black university and being turned away. That sheriff will join us live just ahead. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. 
And we are just two hours away from two crucial court hearings involving two of the four cases against former President Donald Trump. One is in Washington in the special counsel's election interference case. The other in Georgia, where Trump and 18 co-defendants are accused of subverting the 2020 election there. In the D.C. federal case, the hearing is over when to hold the trial for Donald Trump. Special counsel Jack Smith is pushing for a January start. So in just a few months, Trump and his team say the trial should not be until April 2026, long after next year's presidential election. And in today's hearing in Georgia, former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is hoping to get his case moved from state court to federal court. And it also could be the first time we see Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is sketching out parts of her evidence in the sprawling anti-racketeering case against Meadows, Donald Trump, and the 17 other co-defendants. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who Trump pressured to find enough votes to win the state on that infamous phone call, has been subpoenaed to testify. Well, we have full team coverage of both cases. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez is outside the U.S. District Court in Washington. But we're going to start with CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance outside the federal courthouse in Atlanta. Caitlin, starting with you, walk us through what we're expecting this morning. Phil, today is the opening salvo of any of the criminal cases against Donald Trump as far as evidence presentation goes in court. What's going to be happening today in this federal court in downtown Atlanta is that Mark Meadows and his lawyers, his lawyers at the very least, are going to be here. And they're going to be trying to show a judge that what he was doing after the election that has become part of the allegations against Donald Trump and 18 others in this racketeering case that Georgia has brought against them, they're going to try and show that Mark Meadows was doing his job as the White House chief of staff, something that was under his official duties, that he was operating in good faith. Now, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, she does not want him to be able to show that. And so she is going to be presenting evidence that we know of already, including witness testimony from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, from an investigator from Georgia, from two lawyers that were affiliated with Donald Trump after the election. And that witness testimony, what she's going to be trying to do with that is show that Mark Meadows, as he was facilitating calls between Donald Trump and Georgia, uh, Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger, others, and also as Mark Meadows was potentially reaching out to state legislators, all of that effort was political. And it will be up to a judge ultimately to decide who wins. We might not get a ruling today, but it's important here what the judge does and what the judge says, because when the judge makes a determination on this, it is the question of, does this case stay in state court where the DA has charged it, or does this become a proceeding in federal court where Meadows and others who worked for the federal government, potentially even Donald Trump himself, have more protection around them because they were federal officials at the time of this 2020 uh, election allegations. Yeah, the critical question, swinging over to the federal case now, the federal side and Evan Perez. Evan, what does the Trump legal team want and what do we expect the special counsel is looking for today? Well, Phil, what they're trying to do is buy some time for the former president. As you know, he's running for office. He's running for president again. And he is trying everything he can to delay all of these proceedings uh, before uh, he has to stand before the voters in November of 2024. They've asked for an April 2026 trial date. 
that's something the judge, uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, has indicated. Uh, she is inclined to try to set a trial date at this hearing today, perhaps as soon as today. Uh, and uh, we know that Jack Smith, the, the special counsel, he's asking for a trial in January of 2024. Now, the, the former president's legal team is saying, look, we're buried under millions and millions of pages uh, of documents uh, that were produced as part of this case and, of course, his other cases. This case is very narrow in comparison to the one uh, that was brought in Georgia, the one that Caitlin is covering. Uh, he's facing four charges. Uh, one of them is defrauding the United States, uh, obstructing Congress, and, of course, uh, disenfranchising voters in the states where the former president was trying to overturn the elections. We expect that Judge Chutkin is going is gonna, to is gonna force uh, the two sides to, to perhaps uh, defend why they want these, these trials at their particular days. But we, what we expect, uh, Phil and, and Sarah, is that Judge Chutkin wants to have this trial perhaps uh, next spring, next summer, before the election. She's already signaled uh, that she believes uh, this is a case of, of, of importance for voters and for the American public. Uh, for, for, for the deter determination to be made before the election. Guys? All right, big day for both you guys. Caitlin Polans and Evan Perez. Thanks, guys. All right, joining us now, we've got a crack team in here with us today. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, national correspondent for the Washington Post, Philip Bump, who also has a great book called The Aftermath, and former Deputy White House press secretary under Donald Trump, Sarah Matthews, as well as CNN political analyst and national politics reporter for The New York Times, Ested Herndon, I will not forget you again, even though you're not in the studio. <laughs> so happy you're back. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. I'm going to start with you, Ellie. What should we expect from these hearings today? Hopefully getting a date, also seeing maybe a case laid out for us, right? Yeah, so I think, first of all, starting with the Mark Meadows motion to move into federal court, we're going to see live testimony. We're not going to see it because it's not going right. to be on camera, right. but the judge is going to see live testimony from Brad Raffensperger, right? The person we've heard so many times on that famous phone call. He will testify also from this investigator, Francis Watson, who was pressured by Mark Meadows and others to try to recount some of the votes. So this is going to be the first time we see live testimony in relation to any of these cases. On the D.C. case, mm -hmm. the trial date is so important. There's yeah. this wide gap here where Trump's team has asked for 2026, where Trump... Yes, and DOJ wants it in January of 2024. That's both of those, gap. both of those, I think, are unrealistic. It does seem clear to me, as Evan was saying, that Judge Shutkin is going to set a date before the election. Mm -hmm. But where does it land? I said, as somebody who's, who's out on the trail, who's constantly talking to voters, I care less about. I guess I'm less interested at this moment. And what does the Republican primary electorate think about Trump? Like, we got it. We see it uh, pretty much on a daily basis. But from a campaign organization, an actual mechanics perspective, where I think this could really have an effect. The calendar in the money, yeah. when you talk about a campaign, even if you're plus 30, plus 40 in the polls, where do you see this having the biggest impact? I think you really identified it. It's in that calendar and it's in the amount of money that the Trump campaign is going to have to spend on this legal defense. When you talk to people who are close to the campaign, they're not really uh, uh, foremost concerned about the political fallout, the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. They're really concerned about where does he physically have to be in the year of 2024 and how much wiggle room will he have to actually get out on the trail or will it be all wrapped up in these kind of uh, uh, in these legal trials. So I think the calendar is hugely important and then you cannot overestimate the amount of money that has to be spent here and how much that has weighed on Trump and those around him. Now, we know that the kind of apparatus of the Republican Party has lent itself to him uh, as he's faced some of these legal 
problems. But I think that that's even going to become more uh, of that pressure is only going to become more intense. I mean, this is the real uh, necessity of him winning this primary, because I think if a Republican nominee for the next election is standing in front of all of those indictments, that's a little different than uh, uh, than the former president standing in front of those indictments. And so the, the campaign sees its legal strategy as political, not just because it puts it in a different mind for voters, but actually foremost because it might lend itself to getting some uh, uh, financial backing and also kind of create some wiggle room on the calendar front. They don't want to be in courtrooms all year during 2024. And that's actually how this is turning out to have the biggest impact. Uh, Philip, now to you. You had this really good article um, where you kind of went through Trump's post-surrender um, comments, arguments. It was kind of a campaign-style reaction to it. How did you see it? Did you see anything in there that you were surprised to learn, or was this sort of the same old, same old? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I was not particularly surprised. And you're right. Basically what happened is Donald Trump went down to Fulton County, and right afterward he stopped before he got on his plane to fly back to, to New Jersey, and he made these comments. We've seen him do this before, right? We've seen this with the arraignments in, in Florida, for example. He went out afterward and went to that bakery and was schmoozing people, right? And so, yeah, what he did, though, is he made this very pointed political calculation because, you know, Stead is absolutely correct that, that there are these other non-political concerns, but politics is at the heart of that. He needs to maintain this energy with his base, and he needs to maintain them giving him money, right? And so he makes these arguments as he's standing on the tarmac in Georgia that are really centered on how he's, this, you know, the, the target of this, uh, you know, oppressive force, you know, the elites are out to get him. And it's the same standard pattern that we've seen before with, you know, some very specific things to Georgia about, the, you know, this case as opposed to the federal ones. But this is what he's trying to do. He's just trying to, he saw this big jump in both support and fundraising after the indictment in Manhattan. He didn't see as much after the federal indictments. And I think he's hoping that once again, this local indictment where he can really focus on someone who isn't Jack yeah. Smith and who is a black woman, that he can focus on that as being, so he can parlay that into money. And I think if you look at the numbers, uh, the first day, four plus million dollars, I think 7.1 million up to this point, it's borne out that it has been much closer to what we saw after the first indictment than actually more so. And Sarah, I guess that my question is, when you talk to Republicans behind the scenes, you often hear a very different story about their feelings about Trump or the Trump campaign. Um, but from the donor perspective, like they're not getting that money from big donors. And I'm not totally sure how sustainable it is long term. Are big Republican donors looking around saying four indictments? All right, well, like, we'll be there in the general, because that's the question money wise that I have right now. How sustainable is that when this is all small dollar? At some point, you're going to need big dollar. Yeah, I think I've long believed that Trump jumped into the 2024 race because he knew he was facing legal troubles and he wanted to be able to fundraise off of it. And then also he can claim that this is, you know, politicization, like he can use this as a shield and, you know, say that they're coming after him because he's a candidate. But if I'm a big donor, I necessarily or I don't necessarily want to donate to him because I see that he is using these donations to go toward not just funding his own legal fees, but his co-defendants legal fees. And I think I would hold off until the general. And I think that these big donors are having trouble identifying, though, who they want to put their money into exactly. for a primary right now. There's been a lot of different names thrown out. DeSantis was kind of the first person that they were eyeing. And now that his poll numbers have seemed to decline, you know, I think they're looking for someone else to put their uh, money into to potentially defeat Donald Trump in a primary. But that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I just want to ask one last question to you, Ellie. Um, what if everyone in Georgia, I know this is a what if, but I couldn't help myself. If everyone says, I want a speedy trial. Yeah. What happens? <laughs> well, how two they, how could have. they do it? This right, is going to be a half. big problem, I think, for the prosecution, because we, we've had Jeffrey Clark 
asked for, oh, sorry, John Eastman asked right. for a, sp- a speedy trial and now Sidney Powell as well. That's going to split this into two pieces. We're going to have an early trial, which is going to be in October of 2023, and then a later trial. And there's no way to stop that if, the, if you're the prosecution, because under Georgia law, if a person invokes their speedy trial right as a defendant, you get your speedy trial, in this case, has to start by November. And what that means is that all the other people who go second, and I would be happy to be second right. if I was in these shoes, you sit back, you watch, you take notes, you see all the government's witnesses take the stand, you see how they're cross-examined. Mm-hmm. So there's an enormous tactical advantage to going second here, but because of the way speedy trial rights work, there's no way for the prosecution to stop that. I should say it's Chesbro who asked for his early Th- That's right, early that's trial. right. And a just, lot of lawyers in this case. <laughs> I know. A lot of defendants, a lot of lawyers, a lot of, yeah, a lot of different, a lot yes. of indictments, a lot of different <laughs> things, a lot of potential There's trial dates. Going on. Which, yes. There's going to be a lot to cover. Yep. No question True. about it. We appreciate you guys Thank helping you. us walk through it. Instead, we see you. Even <laughs> if Sarah doesn't, I still see you. Okay. See, under the bus. <laughs> under the bus every time. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. <laughs> well, also this morning, President Biden offering condolences to the families of three Marines killed in an air crash during military exercises in Australia. The latest on the investigation. That's coming up. And the sheriff in Jacksonville, Florida, calling the gunman who opened fire at a Dollar General score a, quote, madman who hated black people. We'll have a live update on the investigation from that sheriff coming up next. From years ago to listening to people say, you know, as a black people, we've come a long way. After what happened yesterday, I question that and say, have we really? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's hurtful because I thought racism was behind us, but evidently it's not. And that's what they're calling this uh, act of racism. And I just feel like you was a coward. You went in there and shot these innocent people for nothing that you didn't even know. And then you took your own life. That's just the cowardly way to go. That was a family member of one of the victims of Saturday's deadly shooting of three black residents at a Dollar General in Jacksonville, Florida. She described 29-year-old Gerald Gallion as a fun-loving young father of a four-year-old little girl, a little girl who still did not know a gunman killed her father as of last night because her family just hasn't been able to find the words to tell her about it. The sheriff in Jacksonville says a madman who hated black people targeted those victims. The sheriff released video of the moments the gunman approached and entered the store. There's a still shot of that there. We're just showing you a still because it is extremely disturbing to watch and we know what happened next. Three people were killed over 11 minutes. Two others, um, another shopper and a store worker, then he killed himself as officers arrived at that scene. The sheriff says the killer left behind racist messages and that it was clear he was targeting black people. Now, the Justice Department is investigating the shooting as a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Joining us now, Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters. Sir, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I know that you are extremely busy and I know that you are heartbroken. I wanted to just get an update on where this investigation is. Before I do that, Do you think this was a hate crime? Because you've read the words of this man who perpetrated this horrible violence. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no question about it. He um, he hated blacks and he I think he hated just about everyone that wasn't white. Um, He made that very clear. 
You talk about him as a madman. When you say that a lot of people will, will jump to this conclusion that he was insane, he didn't know what he was doing, is that how you see it? No, I, I don't want to give him um, that. I want to make sure people understand that he is completely accountable. He understood what he was doing. Based upon the things that I've read, um, he understood what he was doing and he understood why he was doing it. Can you tell us where you are in this investigation? Obviously, the suspect is dead, um, and I think you told us that you heard a, that your deputies heard a gunshot go off, and he killed himself. Where does the investigation go from here? So, how these things work? We we start from that point. Now we're going backwards, and every day we're learning more. I just had one of my chiefs come in, and he's getting ready to update me on some new information. So we're going backwards, and we're trying to learn everything that happened. You know, I try to give more and more as, as each day passes. We're trying to learn everything that happened that led up to that incident. Now, we gave a pretty detailed um, timeline yesterday, uh, but I just found out some more information. So we're continuing to learn, but we're going as far back as we can to get to. I um, mean, we want to find out when this all started. Now, Sheriff, you know when you said, I just find out new information, that the reporter in me has to ask you if you can share any of that with us. I can't share it yet because I'm waiting for my full update from my homicide team and and one of my chiefs. So when I get that information, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get that out. Okay, Sheriff, thank you so much for that. Um, l- let me now ask you about when you're looking back, when you're doing this and going back, is there any indication that there were others um, that perhaps knew this was going to happen or perhaps helped him, um, whether it be, you know, obtaining the guns, which I understand were purchased legally, or had some... St- inkling of, of who he was and what he was about to do. Is there anyone do you think that may also be charged in this case? We, you know, we don't know. That's part of the, the investigative process. We're still looking into that. Our partners at the, F, uh, at, the, um, at the FBI, they're also looking at some things to uh, see if things branched out. But as we can see right now, there was no one else involved. He actually claimed uh, to be a, a lone actor in this himself. Um, but we haven't found anything to, to indicate that yet. Um, he first ended up at a historically black university, the, the Edward Waters University. Was there anything that you found that showed he intended to actually attack that university before going to this store? No, there was not. So I'll tell you this much. You know, we learned this yesterday. He had the opportunity to do so and he did not. Um, for some reason, uh, he was focused on, on that Dollar General. Um, he left that parking lot. There were two people very, in very, very, very close proximity to him that he did not do anything to, and we're thankful for that. He left there and went uh, directly to Dollar General and started his job. Uh, there are lots of killing. thank you, sir. There are lots of places, uh, lots of states that are that are either looking at red flag laws or have red flag laws. Was there anything that could have been done to prevent this legally? It's very speaking? difficult, you, yeah. you know. The, the, the it's it's very difficult the the process and uh, allowing people and, I, and I'll, I'll say this and I'm, this is not in my intent to be political at all um, the object is 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 not necessarily the issue it's a tool what the problem is is you can't read people's minds so we we try to go back as far as we can to figure out what happened where he went off the tracks um, I know there was a Baker Act when he was 15 years old he was sent for a 72 hour evaluation. A 72-hour evaluation, uh, they released him from that point, but that does not mean he was held as a, as a mental patient. So that's probably why that did not show up when our 
when our gun dealers uh, ran his information. They did what they were supposed to have done, and it, did, it just didn't come up. Do you think that should change, that if someone is picked up for on a 72-hour hold for, for mental disturbance, that that should be put into a record? Well, you're, you're also dealing with the, the fact that he's a juvenile. There are so many protections in place for, for juveniles, for medical health. Um, and that's a medical issue. That's far beyond the police and the scope of the police. I think that um, there are different ways to try to address that. And it's going to take more than just uh, law enforcement. It's going to take the it's going to take government agencies. It's going to take communities. It's going to take the medical community, um, the psychiatric community to, to, to be involved in working on that problem, on that, on that issue. Can I lastly ask you, how is the community doing after going through this? And particularly the black community who was targeted for no reason at all, except for this person apparently had hate in his heart. I can tell you that I think that, that the black community is hurt, but I think they're strong, resilient. I think they're, um, I think we banded together very well in this city. Jacksonville, this is not representative of Jacksonville. And, and as a matter of fact, this, this person did not live in Jacksonville, came from a neighboring county to, uh, to, to wreak havoc in our community. Jacksonville is a strong community. Jacksonville is a, a, a very, tough community and there are pockets of issues there are there's no there's no doubt there's no doubt about that but that's that's everywhere right i believe this country is a great place and i believe this city is a great place i think um our community is strong resilient i think they've banded together and i think we're going to get through this and i think we're going to be stronger because of it sheriff tk waters thank you so much um for your very honest discussion on what is a very difficult time there in jacksonville i appreciate you Thank you very much. Well, also in Florida, Anna Maria Island looks beautiful right now, but it is bracing for tropical storm Idalia, which is expected to intensify into a dangerous hurricane by the time it hits Florida's coast. How the White House is responding. That's next. Experts are already warning travelers to brace for a hectic Labor Day weekend. Hey, Phil, maybe we should just stay home. You know what I mean? Tips on how to avoid the chaos. That's next. Florida's Gulf Coast is on high alert this morning as Tropical Storm Idalia churns toward the state. A White House official telling CNN that FEMA is pre-deploying emergency personnel to Florida today. The storm is expected to intensify into a Category 2 hurricane before directly hitting Florida Wednesday. Hurricane and storm surge watches are in effect along the state's west coast, including Tampa Bay. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now. Derek, uh, the time to prepare has to be now. Is that right? Yeah, without a doubt, because we anticipate the earliest arrival of tropical storm force winds across the southern Florida peninsula, roughly about 6 a.m. on Tuesday. And as you head a little further north, north of Tampa Bay into the Big Bend area, we're talking about uh, roughly 12 to 4 p.m. on Tuesday. So you don't want to be setting up your hurricane proof uh, shutters, for instance, in the middle of tropical storm force winds. So now is the time. It is your last full day for that opportunity to prepare your property. 65 mile per hour winds. It's basically splitting the difference across the Yucatan Channel, and this is important. It is now moving north at 8 miles per hour, and that's actually increased in forward speed uh, since the 5 a.m. Eastern Standard update. Now, we do have a major hurricane in this forecast. That's important. If you're just waking up this morning, that wasn't explicitly in the forecast yesterday, but now it is. So we know the waters are extremely warm over the eastern sections of the Gulf of Mexico, so anything can happen. We've seen this story unfold time and time again. 
There's some explicit wording from the National Hurricane Center for rapid intensification, so we'll be monitoring that closely. So how will this impact the storm surge? Keep in mind we have a uh, full moon that will be impacting this and the potential there for inundation of up to 10 to 11 feet right near that uh, big bend area. The other concern is inland flooding because the potential for four to eight inches, perhaps up to a foot of rain as possible. And notice this is not just a Florida storm. This moves across the Carolinas and into southern Georgia as well. Timing this out, latest information from the global model from American model. Look at that. That's Wednesday morning across that catcher's mitt, the big bend area that's going to push up a lot of water, but also a lot of wind. So this is a very interesting way to kind of diagnose the threats for wind across the Florida Peninsula and particularly uh, throughout the Tampa Bay region. We want to uh, obviously see that trek further west, but that's just not the case. The potential there for tropical storm to up to category one hurricane winds exists. And then looking a little further north towards Cedar Key, that's where we anticipate the potential at least for winds of 110 miles per hour. Any jog to the west or east can have major implications. And this is very important too, Phil. Notice the wind swath going right through the Florida Peninsula. So Gainesville to Jacksonville, Tallahassee, you also have the potential for destructive winds from this storm. All right, Phil. keep us updated on all of those important developments, Derek Van Dam. We also want to note that Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and uh, the Florida Division of Emergency Management will be holding a press conference at the top of the hour with the latest updates. We'll keep you posted on that as well. All right, experts are warning travelers to brace for a very busy Labor Day weekend. That traditionally marks the end of summer, of course, and that's the end of the travel season. And international travel is expected to be much higher this year. CNN's Pete Montine is joining us live from Washington Dulles International Airport, where I'm pretty sure you live. Um, we know this is the end of <laughs> summer travel. What should travelers do? I don't know what bracing for anything means, but it feels like you just stop in your tracks. What should travelers be expecting this Labor Day weekend? You know, Sarah, I was even a bit surprised by this because Labor Day is kind of a driving road trip holiday. But even the road trip kings, AAA, say that international air travel is through the roof for Labor Day. These are the numbers from AAA, up 44 percent in international bookings compared to last Labor Day weekend. Maybe not a fair comparison. A lot of people were still discouraged by international travel. The international testing mandate was in place until June. But look at these numbers from United Airlines. United says that international bookings are up 35% compared to 2019, kind of the last normal year before the pandemic. Here are the top destinations. Vancouver, a lot of people just trying to get to cooler temperatures. Also a big surge in bookings in Europe. Rome, Paris, Dublin, London. A lot of people just trying to go across the pond for the long weekend. So the big point here is just expect really big crowds. And there are a lot of big tips that you can do here from travel experts. They say make sure that you build in a buffer day if you are still booking a lot of people still concerned about cancellations and delays. You heard the warnings about a potential hurricane hitting Florida. And then also make sure that you think about getting the app from the airline. That's the best way to get that information about cancellations and delays. My big tip, sign up for global entry when you come through the airport. The lines here for customs at Dulles have been huge. Uh, you don't have to make an appointment. If you come through customs and go straight to global entry, you can do the interview there without an appointment. Typically, you know, it's been a madhouse here, Sarah, especially in the evenings when people are leaving for those international flights. So you really got to do everything you can to try and make it easy and book a morning flight, too. That's the other big one. If you book a morning flight, 
makes it less likely to get canceled and delays. That's my big tip. Hey, Pete, can you go ahead and tell the bosses in D.C. I'm probably not going to make it to work <laughs> on Wednesday, you know, because I'll be flying. So just let them know. I'm sure they're not watching me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're also going to Vancouver like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this morning, President Biden and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin are offering their condolences to the families of three Marines killed in an Osprey aircraft accident in Australia. President Biden writing, quote, Jill and I send our deepest condolences to the families of the Marines who lost their lives in this deadly crash. We are praying for those who also suffered injuries. U.S. military says 23 U.S. Marines were flying in an MV-22B Osprey when it crashed. U.S. and Australian military rescue crews worked together to transport the injured from a remote island to a hospital in the northern part of the country. Five Marines were seriously injured. The cause of that accident is being investigated. On Friday, three Ukrainian pilots died in a plane crash about 90 miles west of Kyiv during a combat mission there. One of those pilots was Andrei Pilshovsky. Sorry, Pilshovshikov. I'm really, really, really tired. Bill Shikoff, there you are, who went by the call sign Juice. That is what he was famous for. He told CNN that his friends gave him that nickname during a trip to the United States because he does not drink alcohol and was always ordering juice instead. The Ukrainian pilot appeared on CNN many times in the early weeks of Russia's invasion, talking about his efforts to protect Ukraine's skies from Russian strikes always obscuring his identity for security reasons. Listen. From the first day, uh, we are trying to hold our skies, try, trying to defend our cities, our families, our hospitals, and our critical infrastructure. So uh, as for me, as for uh, fighter pilot, I'm sitting in a quick reaction award duty, uh, and I'm um, intercepting Russian targets, Russian threats. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called the crash a, quote, disaster and praised Juice for his really great service to his country. A Ukrainian Air Force spokesperson said of the Juice that was not just a pilot. He was not just a pilot. He was a young officer with mega knowledge and mega talent. He dreamed of F-16s in the Ukrainian sky. The U.S. has just announced that it would start training Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets that they have been asking for for months now in October. The Ukrainian Air Force remembered the three fallen pilots in this special ceremony where they inscribed the names of the deceased pilots on a piano, played a brief melody, and then the piano is set on fire as the, quote, pilot soul takes off into an eternal flight. Well, despite four criminal indictments and a commanding lead over his fellow Republican candidates, former President Trump has somehow largely avoided criticism from his opponents. Harry Inton, well, he's here to show us why Trump's rivals aren't attacking him. He's here. Well, polls show Donald Trump leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his nearest rival for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination by, you know, give or take 40 points. So you would think, some would think, would cause the former president's GOP rivals to attack him in an attempt to eat into that support, which stands at north of 50% of the primary vote. Yet most of his opponents seem hesitant, if not totally unwilling, to do so. It has been my biggest question, Harry, mm. over the course of several weeks. If you're losing by a lot, go after the guy who's beating you 
by a lot. And yet, Harry, what's today's number? All right, you know, what Phil says makes a lot of sense. That's a first. That's a first for him. This morning's number is minus 44 points. That's Chris Christie's net favorability rating among Republicans. That is the worst on record for any presidential candidate within his own party, dating back since at least 1980 at this point in the primary. Minus 44 points. That's why you don't attack Donald Trump, because if you attack Donald Trump, you become unpopular with Republicans. And it's not just Chris Christie here at minus 44 points. How about Asa Hutchinson? Minus 18 points net favorability rating. Far more Republicans have an unfavorable than favorable view of the former governor of Arkansas. How about Mike Pence? Minus 17 points. Will Hurd, who most people haven't even heard of, wasn't even on the debate stage. Even he has a net negative favorability rating at minus seven points. Did you have the pun intended with the herd and the herd there? Yeah. Not, I said you didn't, but I see it's just natural out it's of you. Okay, so who's gained? Who's yeah. actually done well or boosted their favorability? Yeah, who are the two people who have seen the biggest gains in their net favorability ratings? Look at Tim Scott at plus 41 points. He really is sort of running in his own lane, running on this positive message, not attacking Donald Trump, but not praising him necessarily either. How about Vivek Ramaswamy, who's basically pr praying at the cult of Donald Trump plus 30 points. So basically, you can't go against Trump. You can go down the middle, try not to mention him, or you can praise him. Either one of those pathways work. And the other thing I will note, what do Republicans want? Okay, GOP voters, the case Trump's rivals should make at debates. Against Trump? Look at this. Just 9% say they should make the case against Trump. Make the case for themselves? 91%. So the fact is, why they're not attacking Donald Trump is because, Phil, it simply put doesn't work. It's not what Republicans say they want from the candidates beside Donald Trump. Oh, well, it's working for the people who aren't attacking because there's also doubt by 40. Yeah, you know. Things. Harry, can we hang out yeah, a little bit more? Yeah, let's hang out. people instead. So Sarah. this is how you do it. All right, joining us again, <laughs> they've been so patient with us, Sarah Matthews and uh, Philip Bump are also here with Harry, who has an unlimited amount of energy. So, oh, and... You are you for real right now? I'm really, really gonna, tired. Just because he's not on set doesn't mean. Instead, we're going to start. I'm with sorry, Instead. Because you, uh, <laughs> as somebody who a listens, to, has always listened to, to the pod and reads your reporting and doesn't forget that you're here just because you're not on set with us. Uh, but also, I <laughs> actually you, deeply respect your reporting and opinion on these matters. The idea of not attacking versus attacking versus nothing is working right now to some degree if you're a Republican yeah. primary opponent of the former president. When you talk to campaigns, do they have some grand plan to at some point launch something that changes the dynamic? Yeah, I do think there's a little bit of a, a circle I can help square from Harry there because the numbers really make no sense. To his point, uh, uh, it is increasingly clear that there is a, a group of Republicans who are looking for an alternative that's not Donald Trump, and you still have these candidates who are very unwilling to go there. Now, that po slightly points to the numbers that he speaks to, but that the other thing that happened when you talk to these campaigns is there was an assumption coming into this year that the legal problems of Donald Trump and the combination of the midterm results would kind of do the work for them. These campaigns thought that he would just naturally drop off in terms of favorability and support because uh, of there was such a kind of uh, universal cry from Republicans after the midterms that they didn't see the gains that they wanted. And they knew that these indictments were coming down the pike. Now, this is not necessarily the four that we've seen or the, the, the clarity of evidence that we've seen. But the idea was that some of these would drop off that support. And I think for some of the candidates, the feeling was that once Donald Trump was a diminished figure, then they could go attack him more frankly. 
frontally and see more better returns from it. The wild part is that that's just not borne out from any scope of the imagination. And you still have candidates kind of sticking to that message. When you go back to them and say, hey, is it going to be this time? Is it going to be this time? They always punt the ball further down the line. I asked this last at the debate. Hey, why aren't people going for Donald Trump? And the thing was, oh, you still want to be this alternative. You want to be the number two before you do it. They keep punting the, the kind of responsibility down the line. And in doing so, they have not really created a permission structure for the voters to find an alternative or coalesce around someone else. It was a kind of uh, idea that was based on a hunch, but has never actually been borne out in the evidence. They were looking for others to do the work for them. Sarah, I want to go to you. Um, I remember there's this wonderful analysis by Zachary Wolf, um, who writes these great pieces that gives you some insight. And he talked about the interview Bill Barr did. And this is just sort of gives you some sense. He was on a mission to, to stop Donald Trump from, you know, ruining democracy. But he said that he may still vote for him. What's going on there? And is that sort of the sentiment of those who worked around Donald Trump who want nothing to do with him? But if he's the nominee, that they say, all right, I'm going to go with the party. Yeah, it's really disappointing to see a lot of Republicans who have come out and said that. I mean, even on the debate stage the other night, they did a show of hands of if Donald Trump is convicted, would you still support him as the nominee? And nearly everyone on stage raised their hands, um, except for Asa Hutchinson, to his credit. And Chris Christie kind of waffled, not sure what he was doing there. <laughs> but um, it, it is disappointing to see because I'm someone who believes that, you know, if Donald, obviously he'll have his day in court. But if he's convicted of these crimes, then I do not want him to be the standard bearer of the Republican Party. But he still is deeply popular with Republican voters. So that is what these, um, you know, rivals of him are going to have trouble with is making the case for why voters should should support them over Trump without alienating his supporters. Hard you know, to do. Phil, to Seth's point, as an Ohio State guy, we don't know much about punting, right? We don't, all we do is score <laughs> um, Sorry. It's football, it's football season. Um, but the idea, they keep punting, they keep punting. Like, is there going to become a tipping point or is everybody just running to be vice president and cabinet secretary at this point? Yeah, well, I think this last number that Harry pointed out about how only 9% say, oh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't actually go after Trump. If there was something that worked, people would be piling right. up. Absolutely, right? You know, but to Harry's point again, the fact that nothing is working is that disincentive. I think part of the challenge, too, is the one thing that we saw worked after the 2022 midterms, we saw a lot of people coming out and saying, Donald Trump is tanking this party. We are losing and losing and losing. We are not regaining power. We could be in this great position running against Joe Biden. And that was the point at which Ron DeSantis actually came up and tied with Trump. But that's a hard message to carry over. It's especially hard to say this guy's a loser when you're losing to him by 40 points. Right? <laughs> I, like, how do you make that case? And I right. think that's part of the challenge. I think the loser part is a key part. Right now, all we have are these indictments. What happens if there's actually a conviction? If that occurs and occurs before actually votes are cast or during the primary, then it'd be a very interesting situation going on in the Republican primary. The problem is there may not be a conviction until midway through 2024, right. if there is one at all. And right. by that point, the primary votes are cast and counted and Donald Trump is the nominee. It's like Harry Houdini or nailing jello to a wall. I don't know how you do it, but the way they're doing it right now clearly isn't working. Harry Anton. <laughs> That was a good analogy, pump. nailing no, Jello to the good. wall. He's good. Sarah and Estead Herndon. Hello, Estead. You'll never forget. So Thank you guys very, very much. <laughs> we appreciate it. Well, a Little League World Series for the ages, the dramatic game tying at bat, and the walk-off. That's next. I've been waiting two hours and 54 minutes. 
for this, our morning moment. A Little League World Series for the ages. El Segundo, California was up four runs against Curacao in the fifth inning when Nasir Elsias got a hold of one right there for a grand slam. Look at his teammates soon. They will be swarming him at the plate. Coaches, they're going wild too. Tie game, America crushed. My children crushed. In the bottom of the sixth, this happened. America redeemed. That was Lewis Lappy becoming an instant legend, hitting a walk-off home run to win the Little League World Series championship. El Segundo became the eighth team from California to be crowned champs. The team got messages of support from LeBron James, several Los Angeles Dodgers players. But this is the reason we love Little League. The team from Japan was eliminated on Wednesday, but they still stuck around to give high fives and take selfies with the winners. I love it. I love Williamsport. I love the Little League World Series. Lewis Lappy is 6-1 and just drops bombs. crazy, but just for the fact that it was California, I'm going back to Cali. To Cali. I'm literally going back to... Never mind. I appreciate you. Going back to Cali next week. I appreciate you, but I also appreciate the U.S. winning the Little League World Series championship. Fair enough. Thank you. Hey, thanks for doing this. And listen, I will come back tomorrow. Yes, you will. As long as there's coffee. We'll bring coffee. Excellent. I promise. Okay. And just to remind everyone, we are watching Tropical Storm Idalia. We are waiting for the governor, uh, who is also a presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis, to have a press conference uh, on that. That is ahead. Stay with us. CNN News Central. My people start in just a bit. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.